Okay, for, for us men, this is a time of year that's particularly difficult because there's no football. Anybody with me? So I feel for you. I love you men. So we're going to kick off this morning reminiscing on an amazing football season. So let's, let's go to our first slide. You guys recognize this guy. We got Tim Tebow, right? The great savior of the state of Florida. Well, in 2008, Tim Tebow, before he ran out for his first game, decided that he was going to write Philippians 4.13 on his eye black. And this was shown on national TV each and every week. Now, you guys probably know Philippians 4.13. Anybody have this verse memorized? It says what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this season, they actually only lost one game in the SEC. It was to Ole Miss, and that's when he gave the famous speech right after that. They make it to the SEC championship. They're competing against Alabama, Nick Saban. And Tim Tebow is able to do all things and defeat the Crimson Tide. Then they go to the national championship, and they beat Oklahoma, and they win it all. And look, if you've played any level of sports, I mean, JV, upward basketball, you've heard this verse before, right? Usually from a a coach, a well-intentioned parent, maybe a team chaplain. And very often what we do pre-game is we apply Philippians 4.13 to the sports world. So we say you can do all things, and the all things in this situation is athletic. So you can win the game. Uh, You can rise to the occasion. You can do the impossible. Y'all heard that before? Recently in our culture, we now have not now not only apply Philippians 4.13 strictly to sports, but now we apply it to all of life. So I'll give you a quote right here. This is from a uh, leading pastor in our country, Joel Osteen. He pastors one of the largest churches in our country, and this is what he says. Most people tend to magnify their limit- limitations. They focus on their shortcomings. But Scripture makes it plain. All things are possible to those who believe. That's right. It's possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It's possible to overcome that obstacle. It's possible to climb to new heights. It's possible to embrace your destiny. You may not know how it all will take place. You may not have a plan. But all you have to know is that if God said you can, you can. This is his commentary on Philippians 4.13. So do you see what Osteen is saying? He's saying all things is not strictly athletic. All things applies to your personal life. And so if you have a dream that you want to fulfill, an obstacle that you need to overcome, if you seek to climb to new heights and embrace your destiny, guess what? You can do it. So if there's a job or a promotion that you want, you can do it. If you want to find your soulmate, make more money, have better sex with your spouse, no problem. You can accomplish it because all things are possible. Okay. Now, I know we got some serious theologians and Bible readers in the audience. What do you guys think about that interpretation? Okay, I'm getting some thumbs down. Okay, what, what, what might be problematic... And I'm not throwing shade at Tim Tebow, okay? No disrespect. I think he was just trying to get the Bible out to the world. But what's the problem when we take this passage and we limit it to athletic or personal achievement? And you guys can actually answer this question. What's wrong here? It's all about you? Anybody else? So brave? It's our desires. It's way out of context. And that's probably the low-hanging fruit. It's way out of context. Because here's what's really interesting. All right, this is taken from the book of Philippians, which is called an epistle. Therefore, it's a letter written by Paul to a church. Philippians is actually considered a prison epistle. 
Now, you don't have to be a theologian to figure this one out, but where do you think Paul is when he's writing this letter? All right, he's locked up. He's in jail. He's actually in a Roman prison. It's dusty, dirty, cramped, dark, musty. He's just piled in with other people. More than likely, he was lowered through what looked like a hole or a sewer, and he's living there, right, living out his days. He's basically living in a sewer. So can you imagine if you approached Paul and said, Paul, people are taking this verse and using it as a pregame speech to motivate people to self-help and to fulfill their dreams. What do you think he'd say? He'd say, look, this verse is not about having the strength to play or to win, win the big game. More, it's really about losing your strength and losing the big game. This verse is not about fulfilling your dreams. It's about being content when your dreams remain unfulfilled. This verse is not about conquering the world. It's about remaining content when it seems like the world is conquering you. So here's the kicker. The all things that the author is really referring to, I believe, is more difficult than winning the SEC championship, defeating Alabama, getting the promotion and the job of your dreams. Because what Paul is describing in this one verse is remaining content in all circumstances. He's exhorting, encouraging us to be content in a world that is extremely discontent. So that's our topic for this morning. We're going to talk about being content. So read with me. We're not just going to look at verse 13. We're going to look at verse 10 through 13 in Philippians 4. It says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here it is. I can do all things through Christ or him who strengthens me. So three th- points this morning. We're going to talk about what is contentment. And we look at discontentment, and then how do we learn or put into practice contentment? So what is contentment? It's simply being satisfied, having joy, and trusting in Jesus. And, and probably the two particular areas where we struggle the most with being content has to do with our status and our stuff. We'll keep on coming back to that, but our status and our stuff. Well, what do I mean by status? It could be your relationship status. Maybe you're, you lack contentment because you're single or you really want to be married, or you want to have kids, or you want to be a grandparent. It could be your social status. You want to be viewed as VIP or elite in your community or your fraternity or your school or your sports team. Uh, it, it could have something to do with your professional status. You want to work your way up in your organization. You want the, the corner office. You want to be the CEO or the VP, the head of your department. So very often... Okay, contentment has to do with our status, but also our stuff. That's simply what we own, our possessions. So when we're content, we're satisfied with where we are in life and also what we own. A content person is able to say, I'm satisfied. I have enough. I accept the station and the possessions. I accept what God has given me. Now, before we take this deep dive into contentment, let me just say this. There is such a thing as legitimate biblical discontent, okay? What are some things that we should be discontent with? 
okay? Abortion, okay? Essentially sin. Does that make sense? Okay? What we're not advocating is being content with sin in ourselves and in the world. So we should have a righteous and holy discontent with our own sanctification and Christ-likeness. We should want to be more like Jesus. Does that make sense? And when we look out into the world and see evil and injustice, we should be discontent with that. On the flip side, what I'm not advocating is complacency or, ap- or apathy. Okay, contentment does not mean I'm just resigned and fatalistic and whatever may be, may be. We'll talk about godly ambition in a few minutes. So very often when contentment is mentioned in Scripture, it's tied directly into the love of money. Let me give you two examples. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money. Learn to be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-7 says this, That godliness with contentment is of great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. So here's what's really interesting. There's a contrast in both of these verses between, between trusting in money and trusting in who? In God. Because very often our finances and our money tend to function as a cheap imitation of God. Very often the reason why we want to amass money and wealth is because we're looking for a substitution for God. Think about what money promises but often fails to deliver. Security, safety, satisfaction, and freedom, right? That's why we try to accumulate wealth. But we know in the Bible attests that only God can provide those things, And so you can read Scripture, and all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we're introduced to men and women who are content. And the primary reason that they're content is because they have a deep, intimate relationship with God. Let's think about the Psalms. Psalm 73 was written by a guy named Asaph, and he says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. He says, My strength... And my heart may fail, but the Lord is my portion. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, I can lose my muscles. I can lose my mobility. I can lose my heart and my health. But as long as I have God, I'm okay. We think about King David in Psalm 23. You know this one. At the very beginning, David says what? The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, I shall not want. Now, that word want in our circumstances really means need. Now, here's what's interesting. When David wrote this psalm, he wasn't a king in a palace reminiscing, okay, about back in the day when he was broke, poor shepherd. He actually was a shepherd. So he has no status and he has no stuff. He is surrounded by sheep living in a pasture. And what is David able to say? He's saying, I don't have any needs, there's nothing I desire. Now, sure, he had needs, but what David is saying is God is my shepherd. He is near. He is close. My relationship with him is intimate, therefore I am content. Give you one more verse, Matthew 6. I'm trying to give you some verses you know. What does Jesus say before the Lord's Prayer? He says, the Lord knows what you need, what? Before you ask. So, therefore, it follows, if there's something in my life that I feel like I need... And that's a word we abuse a lot in our culture, right? I mean, when's the last time you said, I need something? 
I have to have it. I'll die without it. That necklace, those shoes, right? That vacation. These are things we need, right? I can't live without them. But Jesus says, look, God knows what we need before we ask. So therefore, if there's something in your life that you don't have, you don't what? You don't need it. According to God's perspective, God's point of view, if there's something, someone, some possession in your life that you don't currently possess, the reason is, is because you don't need it. You know, Paul is later able to say this. He says this in 2 Corinthians, that I have nothing, yet I possess everything. That's a content heart. Because contentment is not based on our circumstances. And this is really what this passage in Philippians 4 is about. Paul says, look, I can be low and I can be abound, but I'm still content. I can have plenty and I can be hungry. That, that to me was the most amazing phrase in this passage. If I skip a meal, I get hangry, right? And Paul says, look, I can be hungry and I'm still content. I can have abundance. I can have need. Do you see what Paul is saying? Because my contentment, my satisfaction is not circumstantial. It's not based on what we do have or we don't have. It's not external. True biblical contentment is what? It's internal. It's based on a relationship with God. So, there's one great little book on contentment. Okay, so for my academics, my college grads, it's written by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. Okay, this is your homework, your extra reading. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I'm not going to quote too much because it's old English and it goes over my head. But he makes two really insightful points. The first is this, is he says, if you want to have true contentment, it comes through subtraction rather than addition. Y'all with me? We're talking basic math here. Burroughs says this, you want true contentment? The path is through subtraction rather than addition. Now, what does our culture say? If you want to be content, it comes through addition. Therefore, buy this rent this, purchase this, lease this, even if you go into debt and you can find contentment. This is the mentality, if I can just have blank, you fill in the blank, I'll be what? I'll be happy. Every week we have a group of college students that comes over to our house. One of our house rules is you put up the cell phone and we have real conversation over the dinner table. And I always have one of those crazy icebreaker questions. And so this week I asked our college students, I said, if you, if you could plan the perfect Saturday, all right, the one day that would bring you satisfaction, happiness, and contentment, what would that day look like? You want to know what a typical college student would say? The first guy said this, I would want to sleep till noon and then watch Netflix. And I was like, that's amazing. I was like, you literally get to do that every day if you want. Okay, I said, you describe two things that are essentially free. If you want, you could have your greatest day every week. And I said, look, for 10 hours a day, you get to do the, the, the greatest hobby in your, in your point of view. So, but this is how we perceive happiness, right? Through addition. You know, the New York Times recently released this article called Happiness 101. And it was really insightful because it talked about how our culture perceives and pursues happiness. And our culture is all about the search for happiness, the pursuit of a contentment. The idea is that contentment is out there. And here's how our culture pursues it. First off, we define contentment. 
So we define contentment. Contentment might be having this type of family, living in this type of home, having this type of job, driving this particular car, visiting this part of the world or going on this vacation. So what we do first is we define contentment in our minds, right? And then we pursue it. But here's what the New York Times actually revealed is that 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 process rarely brings happiness. In fact, the technical phrase that the New York Times used is that this is a hedonistic treadmill. Okay, a hedonistic treadmill. What is hedonism? It just means the pursuit of satisfaction. I think you know what a treadmill is. But the idea is you're running, you're exerting energy, and you're what? You're not going anywhere. And that's what this pathway leads to. Because here's what happens when you get what you want. It gives you a burst of happiness, but then what? You settle back, and immediately you start thinking about the very next thing that will give you contentment and satisfaction, okay? If you don't believe the Bible, if you don't believe the New York Times, let me give you a couple real-life examples. You guys ever heard of John Rockefeller? Okay, by all accounts, he was the richest man in U.S. history, perhaps world history, And there's a story that goes like this, and a reporter came up to him, and he said, Rockefeller, tell me, what was your favorite million that you made? You want to know what he said? He said, the next million, because it wasn't enough. Did you know that um, researchers have done an analysis, and they've actually come to the conclusion that even winning the lottery does not significantly increase your level of satisfaction? Our musicians have been saying this for years, right? Notorious B.I.G., Mo Money. It wasn't Mo Contentment. It was what? Mo Problems. Okay, I realize there's not a lot of hip-hop, hip-hop listeners here. We'll, we'll go way back to the Beatles. What did the Beatles sing? I don't care too much for money because money can't buy me love. I'll give you my own personal example. When I turned 16, I got my first car, and it was a 1989 Carolina Blue Volvo, okay? Four doors, no air conditioning, stick shift, okay? This thing was old school. And it was all I could, could afford. And so I drove it all of high school, all of college. When I finally got a big boy job and moved to Carrollton, I started saving my money. And the first purchase I made was a truck that I still drive today, Okay? And immediately I experienced a burst of happiness, right? That's a big upgrade. 89 Volvo to a decent truck. But guess what I was doing three days later? I was on Auto Trader and I was looking for trucks with bigger tires and bigger engines and bigger body frames, right? Because it didn't last. I settled back. I settled back. The reality is all of these things that we possess and purchase and buy in a year or two or three will be selling in a garage sale. So here's what we need to do. We can't fill in the blank with something in creation. We've got to fill in the blank with Jesus Christ. The path to contentment is not through addition. It's through what? Subtraction. Only until we get to a point where Jesus is everything, Jesus is ultimate, will we experience true contentment. Have you ever been somebody who, have you ever gone through the process of subtraction? Maybe somebody you love is going through the process of subtraction. They've lost maybe a family member. They've lost a job. They've lost their health. And very often, what do people say when they're going through a season of suffering and adversity? That what? I have what? I have peace. I have contentment. Because the path to contentment is through subtraction. 
Here's the second thing that Burroughs says. Still buy the book, read the book. I'm going to just give you the highlights. He says this, is that contentment comes when we do what pleases God, but also when we're pleased with what God does. That's pretty deep. Let me say it again. Contentment comes when we are pleased, excuse me, when we do what pleases God, and at the same time are pleased with what God does. I think you probably get the first part. This is part of following Jesus and being his disciple. We obey him. We follow him. Our life changes in a way that pleases him. But there's a second part of discipleship. There's two sides to the same coin. That we also are pleased with what God does in our life. So we accept his will. We accept and receive and trust in what happens in our life. This means that we embrace the sovereignty of God. Now look, we all belong to a church and a denomination that emphasizes this doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty essentially means, means this, is that we believe that God is in control of everything, that God knows everything, and that he's always good. Therefore, no matter what happens in our world, in our news, in our community, and in our life, okay, God allowed for it to happen. Does that make sense? That's what it means to be sovereign. And so when we, when we find contentment, it, this doctrine of God's sovereignty is not just a creed that sets our denomination apart. It becomes the cry of our heart. Do you see this? This is what Romans 8 is all about. Maybe other than Philippians 4.13, this might be the most other misquoted verse in the Bible. Okay, I'm giving you two, two verses that appear all over inspirational posters and coffee mugs. But you've probably heard Romans 8 before. Specifically, Romans 8, 28, it says this, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so very often we quote this verse and say, Look, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be happily ever after because all things work together for good. But we're missing the context of the verse. Because verse 29 defines the good. The good is not your happiness. The good is not a happy ending. The good, in verse 29, is being conformed to the image of his son. Basically, the good that God is orchestrating everything in your life, in this entire universe, towards that you would become more like Jesus Christ. This really is the bedrock of a content life, that no matter what I face, what adversity I experience, no matter what loss I go through, God is in the process of what? sanctifying me. He is using this to make me more like Jesus Christ. So here's how you can think about this. Really, we looked at two verses, but you can also think about the whole, the, the whole totality of Scripture as a story of contentment and discontentment, right? So you start at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve are what? They're content. They have a garden, they have a job. They have a close, deep relationship with God and each other. Great weather, great food. They're completely naked, okay? Content life. But guess what? Within Adam's heart are the seeds of discontentment, and he wants two things. He wants a new status, and he wants more stuff, right? Because when the serpent comes and tempts Adam, he says, look, if you eat this piece of fruit, you'll become like who? You'll become like God. Do you see what Adam wants? He wants a change of status. But he also, he desires the fruit. 
He wants the one thing that was off limits in the garden. He wants more stuff. So do you see this? In the very beginning, you think about the first sin, all right, this universe-changing fall from grace all began with a discontent in the blessings of God. So let's move on to discontent. What is discontent? Here's what I want to do. I want to separate discontent from some other negative emotions, things like anxiety and frustration. Anxiety tends to be future-oriented, okay? So when we look into the future and we're uncertain or we're fearful, we tend to be anxious. When do we get frustrated? With things in the present, right? When something in the moment, something current, upsets our plans and our desires. Discontent tends to be focused on things that are ongoing and unchanging in our circumstances. Discontent is usually with ongoing, unchanging circumstances. It could be you're underemployed, you got a low-paying job. It could be you're single or you don't have children or you're in an unhappy marriage. It could be something related to your health. Maybe you're on disability or you have a disease or chronic pain. But in general, we live in a culture and a society that is discontent. Did you know this? Did you know that we live at a higher uh, standard of living than even kings did 100 years ago? At the same time, what sociologists have figured out is that our happiness, our level of happiness has decreased each and every year since World War II. Give you a little history lesson right here. A lot of it has to do Okay, with the Industrial Revolution. Okay? And here's why. Because until this point, okay, most of us were farmers. We did agriculture, and so we could only produce the right supply. You with me? But then we started building factories, and we got really efficient, and we had, we, we had assembly lines. And for the first time in human history, we could produce more than we consumed. Okay? And so business owners, factory operators had a decision to make. They could, they could tune back production and just say, we're just going to produce enough for our country, for our city, for our state. But instead, guess what they decided to do? Let's just ramp up consumption. Let's just ramp up consumption. And their solution was through advertisement. They said, look, if we're supplying more, we need to create a greater demand. And they did it through advertising. So think about advertising. The purpose of advertising, advertising at its worst, breeds what? Discontent. Advertising on your TV, on your computer, in your newspaper, it creates an unending desire. It makes you unhappy with your current circumstances. It could be your job, it could be your clothes or your wardrobe, the car you drive, the house you live in. It could be your wife, your body, Advertising is attempting, trying to make you discontent. They do this a couple different ways. They always offer the new and improved. You guys know that, right? The new and improved. Because what they want you to say, all right, is that even though I have the iPhone 8, the iPhone 9, the iPhone 10, I what? I need the next one. I need the new one. And so I got to get the new pair of shoes, right? Because they moved the Nike swoosh, all right, from the top to the bottom, even though it's the same shoe. I got to get the new version of Madden, right? Because it's updated, right? They're creating this unending desire for new and improved for the next version. But you know what else 
kind of, kind, of, kind of heightens this is social media. Okay, social media. Where, where advertisement tries to get you to fixate on what I don't have, social media is trying to get you to fixate on what others do have. It's encouraging you to covet. It's selling the good life. I mean, there's a reason why body image issues are on the rise amongst our young women and even young men because the first time we're being bombarded with these ideal pictures of the perfect body, even though these perfect bodies are mostly plastic and airbrushed, right? That's what we have to live up to. Or the reason why people have discontent with their current job or where they live is because they're being bombarded with images of brand new apartments and amazing vacations and this wanderlust starts to take place. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, Ben, we can't escape this. I can't avoid advertisement. Is this really that big of a sin? I mean, this seems pretty ordinary. This seems pretty normal. But let's get to the root of what discontent communicates to God. Let's get to the sin beneath the sin. Let's think just for a moment of what it says to God. Now, you parents will probably pick up on this pretty quickly. What is it like when you provide everything for your children and they're what? They're discontent. How does that make you feel when your children want more, more, more? Enraged? Anything else? When you provide a roof over their head, their clothes, their food, you give them a car, and they say, Mommy, Daddy, I want more. It's not enough. How does that make you feel? Disappointed. Taken advantage of, right? Right? It's the same thing with God. See, when we're discontent, sorry, the root of discontent is a lack of gratitude. We're being ungrateful. We're failing to thank God for what we do have. I mean, think about it this way. You know, sometimes on your birthday or anniversary, your wife will, will make your favorite meal. So let's think for just a moment that my wife made it steak and lobster for me. Favorite meal, medium rare, Wagyu beef. And then brings out the greatest dessert, brownies and ice cream, homemade, everything from scratch. And I say, honey, hey, can, can we put some sprinkles on top of the ice cream, I, I, want, I want the full experience. I want the full Sunday. And she said, you know what, Ben? We're out of sprinkles. What if I just lost it there? I can't believe this. No sprinkles, this ruins everything. But this is how we approach God. We're like, God, look, it's not enough. You've given us everything, the best meal. You've given us life and breath, but it's still not enough. It shows that we're arrogant. There's an arrogance beneath discontent. Because when we're not content with where we are in our career or our social life and our family, what are we saying to God? That you're not sovereign, I am. I know what's best for me professionally. I know what's best for me personally. I have a better plan for my life, and God, you need to get on my plan. And then third, there's just a greed for more. I mean, just like Adam said to God, you gave me this garden, you gave me my wife, you gave me a job, but I want more. What do we say to God? You gave me life, breath, and breath and everything. You didn't spare your own son, but God, you got to give me more. It just reveals our unending desire for more. So final point is this. How do we learn contentment? How do we become content people, especially in a society that is bent on discontent? One of the first things I want to point out is that Paul says what? He learned contentment. That should give us hope. 
that if we want to be content, it's just going to take time. It's a process and revolves, involves a lot of repetition. But here are four things to help you grow, cultivate a spirit of contentment. Point number one is this. Be other-centered. Be other-centered. So when you love others, when you focus on others, when you give your life away, you will become more content. The Bible says this, but the New York Times article also affirms this point. This is what the New York Times says. When you focus on doing and getting things that give you pleasure... It does not lead to happiness. The best way is through selfless acts of kindness. So here's what's interesting. Paul writes the letter to Philippians. This is a church that he started. This is a church that he loves. And all throughout this book, we see that Paul is focused on other people. And he's focused on two types of people, the church and the unchurched. So here's what Paul says to the church that he started, to his fellow believers. He says this in chapter 1 of Philippians. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. Later, Paul says, I hold you in my heart. And then finally, he says, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. Do you see this? The reason why Paul is able to have a content heart in a jail cell is because he is focusing on his brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is totally countercultural. Because in our culture, whenever we're in pain, we make life, we make our world revolve around ourselves, right? So ladies, when somebody breaks up with you, when you have a hard day, what do you do? You call your girlfriends, you pop in the movie, you eat Rocky Road ice cream, and right, just commiserate. Cry with me, listen to me, all right? We become self-centered. Right? Even my guys, right? If somebody gets hurt on the ball court, you sprain an ankle, right? You stop everything, right? Focus on me. The trainers come out to me. See, we become very self-focused in pain, and Paul does the exact opposite. He's thinking about others. And I'll just make this point. One of the reasons why Paul is so content is because this church sent him a gift. And this church sent him friends to visit him. They weren't just thinking about his spiritual needs, they were thinking about his physical needs, and it led to satisfaction. But Paul was also focused not just on the church, but also non-believers and the lost. He says this in chapter 1 as well. He says, what's happened to me, that's, he's talking about being locked up, has actually served to advance the gospel, so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. So more than likely, here's what's going on. Paul was locked up. And at some point, he was chained to a Roman soldier. And this Roman soldier was a member of the Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard was like the secret service for Roman officials. These guys worked for Caesar and other officials. And look, think about it. If you were locked up and chained to another person, we would tend to think this way. Woe is me, right? I'm locked up. I'm in jail. I'm chained to somebody else. But Paul says what? He says, this is amazing. He says, look at me. I'm chained to a member of the Imperial Guard. What an amazing opportunity to what? To share the gospel. So here's what Paul does. He starts sharing the gospel to literally his captive audience. And slowly but surely, these Roman soldiers come to faith, and the gospel became known throughout all of Rome. So ask yourself, who am I chained to? Who am I locked to? It could be a roommate, and I'm just detesting them. I'm putting up with them. It could be somebody I share a cubicle with. 
right, who has body odor. It could be a neighbor who always dumps their lawnmower clippings on my yard. Instead of saying, I got to put up with them, I got to endure these people, maybe you need to be saying, I'm chained to this person for a reason. Because God wants me to share the gospel with him. How can I use my suffering, my season of subtraction, not only to encourage the church, but to evangelize the unchurched? Almost done. We'll look at a couple more verses in Philippians, because point number two is this. If you want to learn how to be content, you've got to be joyful. I'm reading in chapter 4, verse 4 through 8. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So if you want to learn contentment, be joyful. You know, there's over 70 commands in the New Testament that command us to demonstrate and to show joy. This is what verses 6 and 7, Paul is describing. He says, don't be anxious. Instead, be joyful. Because when we're anxious, we tend to be talking to ourselves about things we can't control. I heard one pastor put it this way. When we pray, we're talking to God about things we can't control. And Paul says, this is how you need to pray. Supplication and request. So this is good for you to hear because what Paul is not describing is fatalism and resignation just with your lot in life. Paul's saying, look, if you want to be married, if you want to be healed, if you want to experience this, if you want a new job, pray for it. That's what making requests is all about. He says through prayer and supplication, that's not a word we use very often, but the root is supply. Paul is encouraging us to ask God to change our circumstances. There's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul is saying is at the end of the prayer, you got to be able to say what? Not my will, but your will be done. God, I trust you. But here's the thing. Very often when we pray for God to change our circumstances, okay, we tend to become very self-focused, very myopic. And sometimes we, we, we end praying even more anxious because we say, God, do this, change this, make this happen. And Paul is saying, in the midst of supplication, you need to do it with what? With thanksgiving. This is great advice. This is really good advice. Because very often when we're suffering, we lose track of what God has already done for us. Does that make sense? We can become so fixated on what we don't have, on the future, on what we lack, that we forget time and time and time again that God has come through that God has given us exactly what we need. So Paul says, pray, seek the Lord, ask for him to supply your needs, but do it with thanksgiving. So, see, very often, what, what Paul is calling us to do is to think. He says, think about these things. Our mind, we tend to naturally wonder towards what we don't have and what other people do have. And Paul is flipping the script. He's saying, he's saying, instead, this is what you need to focus on. This is what you need to meditate on. First, it's God's character. Things that are honorable and commendable and just and pure. That's the nature of God. And second, 
Paul is saying focus on the provision of God. And when we meditate on those things, the peace of God will guard our heart and our mind. Now, this word guard is a military term. It's describing an armed soldier pacing back and forth, defending you from discontent and anxiety. Okay? When I think about the word guard, I think about Kawhi Leonard. We got any Raptors fans? Okay? He is now the greatest basketball player in the world, and he's the best defender. If you know anything about Kawhi, he doesn't speak much, but all these stories have come out since the Raptors won the NBA championship where occasionally he'll trash talk, but not like in a really hurtful way. He just gives these one-word statements. So he gets a rebound, and he says, board man. Okay, and when he makes a shot, he just says, bucket. And when he decides to defend people, he says, no score. That's all he says, two words, no score. And he is such a, so athletic, such a good defender, that he can stop anybody from scoring. All right, he's guarding, all right, the hoop. And this is the guarding, this is the defense that we receive from the Holy Spirit when instead of being anxious about what we don't have, we go to God in prayer. The Holy Spirit defends us from discontent. Okay. Point number three, if you want to learn contentment, you've got to be reasonable. This is verse five. Paul says, I want my reasonableness to be known to everyone. And being reasonable is just being humble. It's being fair. And Paul's just saying, look, whatever you think you deserve, you probably don't. He's just saying, look, be honest with yourself. Most of us, I know some of us tend towards despondency and despair, but a lot of us have an inflated view of ourselves. And Paul is saying, look, whatever rights and privileges and possessions you think you deserve, you probably don't. Because Romans 6 says this, the only thing that we deserve and that we've earned is death and separation from God. And look, I'm not trying to, you know, be glib and preachy because I know there's a lot of people in here who have encountered real loss, real subtraction, and real suffering. As I was putting together this sermon, I mean, probably the, the, where, where I've struggled with discontent the most is just as I think about my future. And I tend to think I deserve more responsibility. I deserve more influence, more recognition, and more honor. And being, what being reasonable reminds me is, is I'm not all I'm cracked up to be. I don't deserve these things. I got to be willing to take less than I deserve. So we got to be reasonable. Point number four, final point. If you want to learn contentment, you got to be strengthened. So we finally come back to our original verse, verse 13. Be strengthened through Jesus Christ. So if we want to be strong, it comes through Christ. Christ empowers us. Christ infuses us with strength. The only way we can be content is through Jesus Christ. So think about Adam. Adam was discontent even in the Garden of Eden. He wasn't content with his status. He wasn't content with his stuff. Adam spent his days in the Garden thinking about a tree, a tree that he wanted to eat from. Do you know that Jesus spent time in a garden thinking about a tree? But the tree was not a tree of fruit. The tree was the cross. Both Adam, both Jesus struggled with God in the garden. And Adam listened to the serpent. But Jesus was unlike Adam because Jesus went to God in prayer. Jesus embodied, he applied in a sense, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. 
And do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he goes to the cross? He's wrestling with God. He's learning contentment in the garden. And he's saying, God, if there's any way, if there's any way, take this cup away from me. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can handle it. But before he leaves the garden, what does he say? He says, this is not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, even in the garden, as he wrestles with God, experienced true contentment. Because he was 100% committed to do what pleases God. But he was also pleased with what God would do. And in this situation, it was absorbing the wrath of God. And if contentment can only come through the presence of God, being in a deep, close, and intimate relationship with God, do you understand what Jesus experienced on the cross? Ultimate discontent. He was separated from his disciples, his friends, his family, and even God himself. Brothers and sisters, there's only one person that got less than he deserved. And it wasn't you. And it wasn't me. It was Jesus Christ. Where where you fail and Adam failed and I failed, Jesus succeeded. He remained content. And Paul is saying, if you want to be strong, if you want to do all things, if you want to remain content, you need to what? Think about these things. So this is our call. This is our mission as believers, as the church, as we go out from this church and we share the message of Jesus Christ, a man who, who maintained perfect contentment and, yes, and yet died on the cross for our sins. We don't just share the gospel. We also show the gospel. And how do we show the gospel in a discontent culture? We live within our means. We suffer well. We serve other people. And we demonstrate to a discontent world that Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus satisfies. He gives me contentment in a way that nothing else in the world can. Okay? Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, Lord, I thank you for examples of men and women who have suffered well, like Paul, who are able to experience contentment, locked up in jail. There's so many people in this church that I know of who are experiencing pain, who have suffered loss and death and sacrifices, and yet they experience contentment in the midst of it. And they're struggling and wrestling with you. Lord, may we be a church that is known for our contentment. That, are, that we're satisfied with where you've placed us, with what you've given us. We'd be satisfied in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that we'd be a church that would be serious about proclaiming the gospel in our community, how only you bring true contentment. We've got more than that. We'll be a church that demonstrates contentment, that we trust you, that we love you, that you are enough. We pray this in your name, amen.